Okay, members, we're now in public session. Just to remind people, if you have mobile devices on, please make sure that they're on silent or airplane mode. Um, any members with any financial or other relevant interests which might be reasonably thought by others to influence their approach to the matter under consideration should be declared now. Agenda item one then is, a sorry, just members, the two oral evidence sessions will be reported by Hansard, <clears throat> just if you're content with that. Agenda item one then, our apologies. Paul Given, chairperson, has given apologies, so I'll be chairing today's meeting. Gordon Dunn and Emma Rogan have given apologies also. Um, Paul Frew, Rachel Woods and Gemma Dolan are currently on Starleaf with us and I think Doug Beatty and Sinead Bradley will be joining us at some stage during the, the meeting. Clerk, can you advise if any members have delegated their votes? can advise that Paul Given, the chairperson, and Gordon Dunn have delegated their votes to Paul Frew, and Emma Rogan has delegated her vote to you, Deputy Chairperson. Thank you very much, Christine. Agenda item two, then, is the draft minutes of the meeting held on the 27th of May 2021. And if I can refer members to pages 5 to 17 of the meeting pack um, for the draft minutes of the meeting. And if members are content that that's a true reflection of the proceedings, of the meeting of the 27th of May. And if so, happy enough, okay, thank you. Um, I'm gonna take silence as consent. So, agenda item three then is matters arising. Um, on that, the Medical Defence Union letter, damages return on investment bill. Members, the Medical Defence Union has written to the committee expressing thanks for the opportunity to give oral evidence at last week's meeting and indicating its willingness to offer further support if required. The relevant correspondence is at page 19 of the meeting pack. Are members content to note that correspondence? Okay. Item two then is a separated prison regime in HM Prison McGabry. Now I had actually raised this and it was in relation to Doug. I'd, I probably would have preferred if Doug had been here because um, from what I can I can gather on this that I actually was wrong in terms of the, the funding of it. Now wrong to a certain extent I have to say because the 2.6 million, these, these prisoners would still have to be, their places would still have to be funded. They would still be prisoners. So the 2.6 million, I suppose, is not fully reflective. However, it is the case that it is currently paid out of DOJ's budget. So just to to correct that, that was that was raised at last week's meeting. And I think Paul Frew had raised that as well, Paul. Um, so are members happy enough? Okay. Items three and four are the updated committee forward work programme and a request from the Department for Justice for a change to the programme. Members, an updated committee forward work programme has been provided at pages 30 to 36 of your meeting pack for information. Um, most of the oral evidence sessions on the damages return investment bill and the protection from stocking bill agreed by the committee have been scheduled and the clerk is continuing to identify suitable dates for the other work items to be scheduled before summer recess. The department has now written seeking to defer the oral evidence session on the results of the consultation on proposals to reform rehabilitation periods, which is currently scheduled for the meeting on Thursday the 17th of June 
as initially requested by the department. The same officials are also responsible for the justice bill and have been unable to complete this other work to meet the timescales required for the 17th of June. So are members content that we reschedule the session on the 17th of June to a later date? Okay, everybody's content with that. Item 5, Committee for <coughs> Finance, Correspondence on the Establishment of an Independent Fiscal Council. Members, at last week's meeting, the committee considered correspondence from the Committee for Finance seeking its views on the establishment of an independent fiscal council for the potential, um, sorry, on the potential role and powers for such a council. And it was agreed that members would forward any views on the questions raised by the Finance Committee to the Clerk to enable a draft response to be prepared for consideration at this meeting. The relevant correspondence is a page three to five of the table pack. Members, no responses or comments on this issue were received from members. So are you content that the committee does not submit any views to the Finance Committee on this issue? As a committee? Yeah, I think parties are probably responding to it in, in their own right and, and individuals, but as a committee, we'll, we'll just move on. Okay, thank you, members. Agenda item four then, the Department of Justice 21 to 22 June monitoring round and 2021 provisional outturn. The department departmental officials will attend the meeting today via Starleaf to update the committee on the Department of Justice 2021 provisional outturn and the June monitoring position. The relevant papers are pages 40 to 56 of the meeting pack and a number of points that members may wish to discuss with officials during the session are included in the senior assistant clerk's memo at pages 40 to 42. The papers also include a response to the committee's request for further information on the number of prison officers currently on long-term sick absence following the oral briefing on the department's final 21-22 budget allocations on the 29th of April. So we're going to be joined now by Deborah Brown, Director of Justice Delivery Director, Andrea Quayle, Head of Financial Planning, Strategy and Support, and Louise Blair, Head of Financial Planning and Support. Department of Justice to the meeting and this session will be reported by Hansard and the transcript will be published on the committee webpage. So Deborah, I think you're going to give us a brief overview first. First of all, thank you to all of you for, for coming to do the, the presentation to the committee today and answer questions. And I think we're going to start with yourself, Deborah. Is that right? Thank you, yes. And I just want to check thank everyone you. can hear us okay? We can. That's super. So thank you, Chair, thank and you. thank you for the opportunity and um, to brief the committee today on the provisional outturn, the COVID nineteen funding and the June monitoring round position. And I'll also just give you an update on the departmental resource accounts. As you've said, I'm joined today by Andrea Quayle um, and by Louise Blair. Today, we want to provide you with an update on where we are in terms of the current financial year as part of the June monitoring round. But before we get into that detail, let me just outline our provisional outturn position for the 2021 year. As noted in your papers, the provisional outturn figures were submitted to the Department of Finance on the 14th of May. As you're aware, this was a very challenging year in respect of managing budgets in this COVID environment. The department closely monitored its position throughout the course of the year, and this has now resulted in a 1.1% non-ring-fenced resource Dell cash underspend, a 1.1% 
overspend in ring-fenced resource Dell and a 4.4% capital Dell underspend. I think that this is a good achievement given it was a particularly difficult um, year to manage budgets during this COVID-19 pandemic. There were a wide range of effects of the pandemic and that this had a significant impact on the delivery of business across the department. Turning now to the June monitoring round and COVID-19. The main area of discussion today is the June monitoring round. As you're aware, this is the first monitoring round of the year. This year continues to be unusual in terms of budgets, where we have provided our best assessment of the activity in a recovering COVID-19 environment. As you're aware from your papers, additional COVID-19 allocations have now been agreed by the executive, which provides the full requirement for the recovery um, for COVID-19 of 21.9 million resource and not 0.8 million of capital. It does not include the 6 million that was requested for the LSA element, which was the amount which has been assessed to bring LSA back to its normal projected um, business. And so therefore we will submit a bid for that 6 million in the June monitoring round. On resource, in terms of where we are, following the opening budget allocations, the department was holding 763,000 pounds of funding for emerging departmental pressures, 7,524,000 ,000 for legacy inquests, 2.4 million for Gillian, Gillen, and 114,000 for EU exit, a total of 10.776 million. The funding held for legacy inquests and Gillen serious sexual offences have now been allocated out to the relevant business areas. We are required to return a ring-fenced identified easement of 1.1 million in relation to the Office of the Police Ombudsman for Northern Ireland for the historical investigations funding back to the Department of Finance. In addition to the funding held in the opening allocations, there were easements highlighted through the June monitoring round process of 318,000. A transfer earmarked for allocation to the Department of Health of £55,000 and a commitment made by the Department to the RUCGC for £68,000. When finalising the Budget 21-22, the Department had significant resource pressures, excluding the COVID pressures, of approximately £27.7 million. As part of this June monitoring round, we plan to submit bids of 23.9 million, which is broadly in line with the pressures that we had outlined, but some of those have reduced and some of those have gone up. We will, of course, throughout the year, continue to monitor these pressures and see how best we can manage them. Specifically, in relation to the PSNI pressures, within that 23.9 million, a bid will be submitted to the Department of Finance for a McLeod pressure of £134,000 and £5.7 million in relation to the EU exit pressure. This is the money which is required if the Northern Ireland Protocol bid to HM3 Treasury is not met. There remain other significant pressures which may impact in 21-22, namely compensation service payments and legal aid, large case exceptionality. The position has now been updated in relation to the compensation services payments 
and um, this is to do with the statutory discount rate and their range um, of the pressure is estimated to be between 15.7 million and 21.9 million and so therefore at this point we propose to submit a bid for 16 million pounds we will of course be highlighting to DOF that there is considerable uncertainty in relation to the timing and the quantum of these settlements and therefore the position will be reviewed again in October monitoring round. Along with this bid, we also propose to submit three million pounds for the legal aid large case exceptionality cases and that is included within our overall bid. Taking this into account, the department will submit a bid of 23.9 to meet the pressures along with 16 million in relation to the compensation services, which if met, the department will leave the June monitoring round with £114,000 of EU exit funding and 127 of Gillen remaining unallocated at this point. We will still have pressures of 1.9 million um, and also a small pressure on legacy of £180,000. Again, we will keep these under review and if needed, um, make other representations through the October monitoring round. In terms of the capital, the 21-22 budget was allocated out in full. At this point, there is an easement being reported of 1.5 million from a pony, which has arisen due to a delay in the replacement of their case handling system. There are a small number of small pressures below the de minimis level across a range of areas, and these will be looked at through internal reallocations. This then leaves 846 of capital, which will be held centrally, and we will look at how that would be allocated throughout the year, keeping a close eye on the profile of the capital expenditure. On ring-fenced resource dial and our annually managed expenditure, as part of the June monitoring round, we will also update our ring-fenced resource dial, which is the technical budget to cover depreciation and impairments costs, and to increase our annually managed expenditure budget. We have received bids of 7.263 million for ring-fenced resource Dell, for which we only hold 712,000 pounds. We will meet 263,000 of this, and we then will submit a bid of 7 million pounds to the Department of Finance. This would leave us with an unallocated amount of 449,000 pounds Again, we will hold this and keep it monitored throughout the year. We'll also agree to any movements and bids um, of 30.6 million. Per your paper, this was 44.6 million, and this has been updated to take account of the revised position on the compensation payments. And then just to give you an update on our resource accounts, um, we are very glad to be able to report that we are on course to meet the summer recess deadline for laying the annual reports and accounts for the 2021 year. Of course, this still remains subject to completion of the audit um, and there could be unforeseen delays given the position on the pandemic. The Department of Finance have advised um, on the 1st of June that the Business Committee of the Northern Ireland Assembly have extended the summer recess deadline for laying accounts to Friday the 9th of July, previously that was the 2nd of July, we are still um, operating on our timetable to meet this by the 2nd of July. 
So in summary, I hope that this has provided you with a useful overview of where we are. We obviously must keep this under constant review, given the uncertainty around COVID-19 and how we will recover and move out of this. Um, it does still remain a very challenging budget, um, but again, we work with our partners to make sure that these things are kept under control. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to brief you this afternoon, and myself and my colleagues are happy to take any questions. Okay, thank you, Deborah. I appreciate that. Um, and there are a couple of members who, who are looking in, but just can I just ask one quick question before we go to other members? The 1.1 million on the Historical Investigations Fund for the Police Ombudsman's Office, why was that returned? What was what was the issue there, and why could it not be used for something else? Was it ring fenced? So this, so the, this is, is it has to be returned because it's ring fenced, um, and the reason is because there is a delay in the preparation of the business case, and so therefore they've had to feed that into their profiling of when they'll be able to recruit staff. So that's the rationale for that one. And has the problem been there that that they didn't have enough notice they were going to get this money, and that then became the issue with recruiting staff? That, I mean, that, that is something that we, we really need to address. That's, a, you know, to actually get money and then to have to give it back because you don't have the notice in order to be able to recruit is a real problem, particularly given that there are a number of ongoing legal cases, legal challenges to both the, the department and the police ombudsman's office around delay on these cases. Um, so, I mean, that, that is certainly of, of concern. I, I don't expect you to answer that. You've answered what you can. But I suppose I'm just making the point. Um, Gemma Dolan, and then Paul Frew, and then Rachel Woods. Thanks, Chair, and thank you for your presentation, Deborah. Um, I just have a question, Deborah. Um, the, there was an underspend of 7.8%, but then there are overspends in Capital Dell of 4.1%. Um, by the court tribunal service and of thirteen point six percent by the probation board. What like do you know what the reasons are for these underspends and overspends, and how can the department deal with them? So um, there, there were a number of, of um, underspends. I mean, the total underspend was was twelve point six million pounds. Mm -hmm. um, just checking with my colleague here. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, so it was it was a total of twelve point six million. So that was a combination of things across the board. Um, uh, quite a few of those were due to there was slippage in, in filling of posts. Um, there was a, an element um, in, in prison service as well, which is quite a large element, um, again, to filling of posts um, of 4.6 million. We were able to um, notify LSA that there was some money available, and fortunately we were able to divert a million pounds of that across to LSA for them to, to pay for that. Um, there were also underspends in the court service um, of, of 1.4 million. Um, we also had um, 1.2 million underspend in compensation services, where there was just um, some delays in finalising some of our, our claims. So there were quite a number of, of different reasons for those um, across the board. Okay, and how will the department um, handle them, or how did the department handle them? So that money um, means that we just that goes back um, into the, the wider system, and then there's something called the budget exchange scheme, um, and that's NICS wide. Um, depending on what the outturn is, then there's a percentage of that is given back to Northern Ireland, and then that will be redistributed. Um, there was an exercise conducted in March where the Department of Finance collected as many 
known easements and underspends and redistributed those, so those have already gone out. So these are additional um, underspends on top of that, which I say will hopefully be available to Northern Ireland as part of that budget exchange scheme. Okay, and then what about the overspends? Overspend. We just had an overspend um, on the on the ring fenced um, Dale. So what we'll do is we should be able to offset that against those underspends. So that shouldn't cause us an issue. Ah, okay, that's grand. Thank you. Thanks, it Chair. It has to be shown that way, but actually, it doesn't cause an issue. No bother. Thank you. Thanks, Gemma. Um, Paul Frew. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, can I ask a question similar to Gemma's? So. Looking at the ring fenced resource Dell, and we can see a wide variation of over and under spends compared to non ring fenced resource Dell. Now, I get the reason why the ring fenced stuff would be harder to spend. Um, but how does that compare? Well, first of all, how can we justify such a percentage variation? I'm looking at the policing board there for 44%. Uh, Ombudsman 33.8%, another one there 37.2%. So they, they, they are very high. How do we justify the wide variation there? And then also, how does that compare to previous years? Okay, so just bear with me two seconds. I, I did bring with me some stats on previous years' spend, so it wasn't, it, it was, there, there, we have had underspends in previous years. It not being quite as large as those, and of course now I can't find the paper. Just bear with me. Um, there, yeah, no, I had a, had a moment. Let me be more organised. All these papers in front of me, and I can't find them. Yeah, that's it. There. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, last year we had um, an underspend of 8.9 million compared to 12.6 million this year. Um, 8.9 million last year was 0.8%. Um, so I suppose, broadly speaking, it's not too far away. And I think in a year where we had all the additional COVID money, we also had the slowing up in our um, uh, some of some of areas of our business. Um, we also had you know people leaving the office um, and having to very quickly get used to working from home. Obviously, that has had an impact. Um, and also moving forward, you know, we'll be looking at some of these reasons. But again, another of the things, one of the big issues in here has been recruitment of staff. And our ability to fill some of our vacancies. So again, that has impacted on it also. Um, so those are elements that we are taking into consideration as we move into this financial year um, and being careful about this. You'll know from the previous briefing that you got from us um, on the 21-22 budget and the very challenging settlement that we got on flat cash. One of the ways in which you know we would be looking to manage some of those pressures is through vacancy management. But when we already have an issue with actually recruitment, then that's going to impact as well. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on. Um, and you heard um, Romy specifically speak about that the last time, that we wouldn't be taking action um, on our posts um, until later in the year, until we understood properly how some of these things were actually feeding through. So, so and I get that, and I get that as an explanation, but how then, how then can we justify that for a ring-fenced resource tail and how then did we not have the same issues on the non-ring fenced resource tail totals? So, um, the ring fenced resource tail, Paul, can only be used for technical 
pressures such as depreciation and impairment. And quite often, it's not really until the end of the year until the impairment values can be calculated. So, no, I think you, I'd heard you you highlighted the policing board figure of forty four percent. Yes. It, it, it's quite it's a, it's an underspend of twenty two thousand or twenty two thousand against a budget of fifty thousand. So. While it seems like a large percentage, it's a relatively small amount of money in, in the, the scheme of things across the department. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get that the numbers are small at that level and, and itemised at that, they're small. I suppose they gather up, you see, and I suppose no matter how much the figure is, uh, you could argue then it's a problem with management, uh, the management of any money or any sums of money. Uh, so. Is that something that we can't resolve through monitoring rounds? And as you have rightly said, you can only get that information at the end of a financial year? Or is it something that we need to look at with regards to monitoring rounds to make sure that that money can go back into a centre and then be redistributed, even if it's in-house in the department itself? Well, well, we do have a process in-house we need to make sure that we are monitoring um, on a monthly basis all of our expenditure um, and where we have the flexibility we wouldn't necessarily wait for a monitoring round you know to allow someone to spend money so for example i gave the example there by the lsa where they were able to spend that money so we were very quickly able to move on that we'll always be looking um you know to be able to maximize the budget that we've got and redistribute within the parameters that we have um, and then just waiting for the monitoring rounds to give back money um, if we can't um, spend it ourselves. Um, I mean, there are definitely lessons to be learned. We can always get better at this. Um, I think it was an unusual year and very challenging for people. Um, but we will, of course, you know, Paul, take all of this on board and look at that, especially in light of the significant pressures that we're facing um, in 21-22 around where areas have underspent um, and specifically homing in on that issue of staffing and recruitment so it's not just about the budget but it's about the ability to get the people in um, and if that's going to restrict us then we need to have a look at the implications first in that regard thank you uh, uh, a question then on the monitoring rounds there is additional funding left for or allocated sorry for legacy and also for gill uh, just to be clear uh is that money that you've bid for or is that money you've redistributed within the department? That was money that we were that was given to us in our in our baseline. Um, but what we hadn't done was we hadn't actually allocated out to the business areas. They were refining their figures. So that's that's that was where that came from. Uh, and do you think that's that funding totals, I think it's seven point five million for legacy and two point two million for Gillen Review. Is that is that what you think you'll need to spend or need to be allocated over the year or is that just in this first period of the year? No, so, so Gillen, um, the um, estimation was £10 million over five years, so that 2.2 we think is, is pretty much what we need for this year. Um, on the legacy, and with £5 million in the baseline, and we got £4.2 So at this point, um, that's what we think we need for this, this financial year. But of course, we keep this under review, and obviously we have to look at what progress we can make on those things. Okay, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Paul and Rachel Woods, and then Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Chair, and thank you um, for your presentation and for all the information in the, in the pack. Um, certainly a number of questions I wanted to touch upon have been asked, but 
Um, you mentioned the budget exchange scheme. Um, would you be able to give me a wee bit more information about that, please? When it happens, and then when will when departments know if they're eligible or getting what they've submitted for? Credit Andrea. <clears throat> Uh, the Carry Forward of Understabettance is known as the Budget Exchange Scheme. The scheme allows the Northern Ireland Executive to carry forward departmental interview underspends up to the limits agreed by HM Treasury. And the outcome of that is normally known at June monitoring and will be presented to um, the Executive at that stage. Departmental underspends are managed at Northern Ireland block level and by the Department of Finance and they're not available for individual departments to carry forward. Well, thank you. Uh, it's not one I'm uh, over any detail on, so just interested to happen. Is there any kind of um, level of which a funding can be um, sort of, you know, as part of that budget exchange scheme? Is it uh, limited on terms of how much can be requested or dealt with? Um, it's based on limits set by Treasury, and there would be a percentage of the overall block budget. Okay, thank you. Um, well, thank you. The, on page 45 of, of the um, documents that we got um, was, was regarding the Legal Services Agency and um, was two, two couple of, oh, sorry, a couple of questions just on that. The Legal Services Agency Northern Ireland, 100% forecast demand. Um, is this the uh, is it an expectancy that the, the demand then on Legal Services Agency is returned to pre-COVID levels? Or what does that mean by 100%? Uh, forecast demand, or is this to deal with existing and known backlog issues? Or, and the, sorry, the third question then is what do, is meant by bad debt write off? Okay, okay. Um, so bad debt write so bad debt write off is where you know, there are there is money that's being paid out um, and that we're trying to recover because it wasn't given that the, all of it wasn't needed. So it sits for a number of years. There's bad debt sitting on the books, which is 12 years old. Um, and so therefore, in order, because it's now not deemed to be recoverable, we've gone through all of the process of trying to recover the debt, we get to the point where actually it's, it's not recoverable. In order to write it off, you need budget cover to write it off. Um, and that's the reason for that. Um, on the LSA, 100%, so LSA's budget is 76 million pounds. In previous years, its expenditure normally averages around eighty-two million pounds. Um, we have consistently said that the LSA baseline isn't in line with what would be normal spend, and every year we've had to bid for more money for LSA or use easements that have come out of the department. And when we used to have three and four-year budgets, that's whenever you would have been able to sort of like sort out your baseline and, and bid and get a um, you know your your basic requirements in that and that's not the case in this at, at the moment. So six million pounds is needed to bring it from its baseline of 76 million up to 82 million. So that's 100% of what we would call normal business. Then as part um, of the um, of the COVID bid, then um, there's a COVID bid um, being met, being made, which um, approximately seven million pounds of that. Um, just let me just check it is. So £7 million pounds of that um, is to bring, um, is to recover the system. So as the rest of, the, of the, the, the justice system recovers and business comes back on board, that's seven million to make up time that's been lost. So that's an addition to that. Um, so that's sort of the differences there. So there is an element to get to 100% and there's an element to make up for the lost time that we've had um, because of COVID. So it's called COVID recovery. and. 
fortunately, you know, we did get that funding um, as part um, of the of the COVID process. Thank you. Well, a very um, detailed question. Thank you for a detailed answer. Um, on page 46, then, it said that it was a number of small net transfers out to other Northern Ireland civil service departments, totaling 868,000, um, which had been agreed. Is there a breakdown of what that is? Yes, um, there is, they're relatively small amounts between the Department of Justice and other departments. For example, there is 48K to Department of Finance for a contract management system. 4K for video conferencing and 63K for government advertising, and they would be transferred to Department of Finance. There's a transfer in relation to a transfer to Department for Communities for the fraud and error team in relation to legal services. Um, there are other smaller amounts across the department. One of the remaining amounts, the higher amounts, would be in relation to PSNI, 90K from the Department of Health for multi-agency risk assessment conference, 572K from TEO for victims payment scheme, 204 to the Department of Health for Rural and Sexual Assault Referral Centre, and 56K to Health for Nursing Healthcare. Thank you very much. Um, and finally, for me, um, is part of the table pack letter that we, we received just before this meeting with regard to the personal injury discount rate and the um, sort of set about uncertainty as to the number and timing of the settlements in relation to the PIDR. It's estimated the range of pressures between 16 and 22 million is considered possible. Um, could you elaborate a bit on that? And is that included within the June monitoring round? Yes, so that's the bid that we're placing for £16 million. So on top of the £23 million, we're bidding for £16 million for compensation services. Whenever we gave you your paper, we hadn't worked our way through the compensation um, payment um, implications of the discount rate. So the range is between 16 and £22 million. So that rate just came in at the start of the week. Um, as we know, um, and you, you'll have seen underspends in compensation services last year, People were holding off um, for this, um, and so, so now we expect to see a number of cases settling quickly. Um, we're bidding for 16 million because we just don't know how this will really pan out, um, and over the next number of months we'll get better intelligence on that, and we can revisit an October monitoring round. And if we need to bid for that higher amount, you know, that, then we'll top it up at that point. Um, but it is very difficult with with no um, precedent set on this. So, you know, how this will actually um, um, pan out in, in practice. So that's why it's got that heavy caveat on it. Thank you very much. Um, I'll let other members come in with those questions. But thank you for your answers. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Just on the back of that last point around the personal injury discount rate and the money for it. Do you really think there'll be a lot of settlements based on the interim rate? Yes. Okay, I, I know that the, the those who have been injured in a rate and compensation might want to settle, but do you think the defendants will settle? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, it's based on the assessment by compensation yeah. services of the claims that are <clears throat> potentially likely to settle in this year. Okay, I'm only raising it because if I was a defendant, there's not a chance in hell I would settle based on that rate, given all the information that we've got. But um, obviously, there will be some directions will come from court cases where there will have to be settlements. So, so I accept there will be some. Um, thank you for that, Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Chair. Um, I just wanted to 
Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the presentation. Uh, to be fair, apologies, I came in late. I had a bit of technical difficulty. Um, but um, most have, things have been asked. But if, if you don't mind, I will go back over um, one point that was raised. And, and I know it is relatively minor in this, but just to get an understanding of it. Um, and that was that point about the bad debt. I understand you were saying you know, that it's a 12-year debt that maybe the line there and it has to be written off get that. But I still don't understand... Um, what might have generated that debt? Is that from a partner organisation, or because I'm not really sure many revenue raising um, situations where that debt could have risen? So maybe I'm on the wrong way of thinking here. Maybe you could throw some light on that for me. Thank you. Okay. Well, Sinead, if you don't mind, what I'll do is I'll get you a wee bit more detail on that because there are a number of reasons why something would be a bad debt, um, and that I should be able to get that set out very clearly for you. It's probably better if I do that rather than give you something that's not a complete answer on this. If you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Because I just can't, in my own mind, uh, reconcile what that might have been. You know, to have finally arrived in that position. Um, in a budget. But the other thing, um, I suppose, you know, the one thing that just keeps screaming out at me here is just how different this year has been. And it will have no doubt an effect on anything going forward. And, and you rightly keep uh, repeating their reference to the recruitment, for example. So, you know, so just even when you start to focus even on just that one part of this and you think, well, okay, there was a lot of people maybe on furlough who wouldn't have been in the employment market who may come into potential. So I just wondered, has the conversation been had, um, you know, with the department speak to the executive and department of finance um, essentially said there's not a big readout as you would use in previous years. There's not a big readout to be had from this in next year's budget or the year after because it is so different and unique with its unique um obviously complications and i would say that's true of all departments in different ways so has that conversation been had where this is somewhat different to any other year that's gone well, I mean, I know indeed in any of our conversations with DOF, we will always be making that point. Um, I understand that we hope that there will be um, a, a budget um, process commissioned by DOF, hopefully before the summer, um, and we would be making those points as, as part of that as well. Um, and of course, we will be looking back over previous years and trends and drawing those out um, to support you know, moving forward. But also in DOJ, there are a lot of new things that have come on board um, and we'll just have to make sure that we're very clear about what our requirements are on those as well. Okay, I appreciate that. And uh, could you give, an issue, in terms of them projecting forward, because it, it does appear, you know, whenever the, the whole recruitment um, pace falls or hits difficulties, like every other department, then you, you start talking about the use of agencies, and that's an expensive business. Um, so is there going to be a big drive in trying to resolve those staffing issues and trying to get away from that um, temporary provision of using agency staff to plug the hole? Yeah, NICSY, DOF are, are leading um, a piece of work around workforce planning, um, and I sit on a, on a group um, that meets... Um, every six weeks, I think it is, every week. So yes, that, that is something that we're very alive to, about trying to get to a position where we have a pipeline 
um, of, of recruitment and that we are feeding the system um, so that we make sure that we're not leaving those sorts of gaps because whilst agency can plug a gap, they're expensive, but also you know, we're not retaining the skills um, of those people um, and that's another issue obviously gets fed in, into the whole workforce planning piece. Okay, I appreciate that. And um, could you just add on that piece? Because this is where I think the, the you know, we always talk about coming out of silos in the Department for Economy and working with um, further and higher education and even going back with the Department of Education and Schools about really trying to promote careers within, you know, the justice family. Is that part of that piece where yeah. you yeah, take that long term? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying, like, obviously, there's a, there's a, that's a massive piece, but yes, we yeah. are trying to look at that. Um, and one, one area where we're looking at at the moment is, is the use of apprenticeships as well. Um, I'm very keen to, to, to look at how we bring people in from further education at an early stage, introduce them to you know, the NICS, um, and promote that as a career for people. So, yes, that's definitely okay. within our I appreciate that, and I know it is going off in a direction. But I think once a problem starts to be measured in a budget, then it's it's a real problem. So I appreciate that that is visible, and I thank you for your replies. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead. And to be fair, I, I probably don't think it's going off in a direction. I think it, it's very relevant and can be relevant right across um, all of the departments, not just justice. To be fair, though, um, no other members have indicated. So can I just check that everybody's content? They've asked all the questions they want to ask. Okay, thank you, Deborah and um, Louise and Andrea. Appreciate you coming to the committee today. Um, it, it wasn't too bad. I don't think. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much. Appreciate you coming. Thank you. Members, the um, function of Government Miscellaneous Provisions Act 2021 requires departments to provide their committee with an oral <coughs> or written briefing on its submission to the Department of Finance within seven days of that submission being made. The department normally provides an oral briefing before making its submission, as has taken place today, and subsequently provides a copy of monitoring forms to the committee. Are you content that we request the forms are provided? to the committee within seven days of their submission to the Department of Finance and to ask the Department to provide a written update on the outcome of the monitoring round and details of the remaining budgetary pressures facing the Department at the conclusion of the monitoring round. Are members content? And we can send any of the questions in, in the Senior Assistance Clerk's memo that were not covered during the evidence session to the Department for a written response. Members content with that? Yep. Okay. Agenda item five then. The damages return on investment bill or evidence from the Medical Protection Society. Members, um, a representative from the Medical Protection Society will join the meeting via Starleaf to provide oral evidence on the damages return on investment bill. A copy of the written submission from the MPS is at pages 58 to 63 of the meeting pack and a paper setting out issues. The committee may wish to explore during the evidence session is at pages seven and eight of the table pack. Can I welcome Tim Jordan, the executive director of Commercial Services Medical Protection Society to the meeting and advise you that this session will be reported by Hansard and the transcript will be published on the committee webpage. Yes, um, good afternoon. 
Harry, Jim, just I suppose to say, firstly, obviously we have read um, your written submission, which was very good, I have to say, very concise and, and easily understood. So that's much appreciated. Um, makes life a bit easier when you have up to 700 pages of reading to do for a committee. So thank you, appreciate that. Um, so just if you want to outline any, first of all, would you prefer to be called Tim or Mr. Jordan? Um, Tim is fine, Chad. Okay, thank you, appreciate that. And if you just want to outline any issues that MPS wishes to draw to the attention of the committee in relation to the damages return investment bill and the proposed new framework to set the personal injury discount rate. And then there'll be an opportunity for members to ask questions. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Chair. Um, the Medical Protection Society, MPS, welcomes the opportunity to give this evidence to the Committee for Justice on the Damages Bill. Our ambition is that the legislation leads to a fairer and more predictable framework for setting the discount rate. MPS is the world's leading protection organisation for doctors, dentists and healthcare professionals. We have more than 300,000 members around the world, more than 8,000 of those are in Northern Ireland. Um, in terms of myself, I'm responsible for the products that we provide to members at MPS and the prices that we charge for those products. I'm an actuary by training, so I've taken an interest in the setting of the personal injury discount rate around the world um, and today um, for this committee. Um, the subject of this review is particularly relevant to us because membership to MPS provides members with a right to request indemnity for claims arising from professional practice. And we manage those claims with clinical negligence brought against GPs, private doctors, dentists and other healthcare professionals. One of the most terrifying things a member can face is a claim being brought against them and our claims handling philosophy aims to provide an expert, supportive and efficient service to members who are faced with those claims. Where there's no defence um, and it's clear that a claim will continue to be pursued, MPS tries to effect settlement on fair terms as early as possible. That's fair for claimants and that's fair for our members who don't want to go through lengthy court battles. Where there's good defence to a claim, we are robust in pursuing that defence and many claims do not withstand detailed legal scrutiny and we successfully rebut them. Um, so probably at least 70 to 80% of our claims do get successfully defended in the medical world. Changes to the PIDR have a profound consequence on the cost of clinical negligence, and this in turn will have an impact on healthcare professionals. I think you've already heard in your budget session the impact already of a change in the PIDR could have to the, the amount going out of the, uh, of the budget. As a responsible well-managed defence organisation, we've got an obligation as well to reflect the costs of clinical negligence in those membership subscription fees so we can be in a position to defend those members' interests into the future. And they also, those changes lead to a change in the costs for the Department of Health via the Health and Social Care Agency. It's important that there's reasonable compensation for patients who are harmed due to clinical negligence, um, but this has got to be balanced against society's ability to pay and the impact of the changes on wider issues such as the provision of healthcare. And that's why for MPS striking the right balance in how the rate is set is so important. Um, that is our initial statement and I'm, I'm happy to take any questions on the submission or, or anything else you'd like to explore. 
Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. C can I just ask one quick question? You've referred to the the notional portfolio, and I'm just wanting to ask: Do you believe that the current notional portfolio would be appropriate if it was based on the thirty year period, as Scotland is, rather than the forty three year period? Or what? What's your view on on that? The thing that I like about the 43-year period is that it's based on actual data. It's based on the average length that a claimant invests their money for. So it does make more sense to me to use 43 years rather than just a sort of arbitrary 30 years. Um, it also gives you opportunity to invest in perhaps some longer-term assets that might perform slightly better for, for that claimant. Um, so I think on, on two grounds, it's a, it's a sensible period to use. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I suppose just to make a point, we had been told by the department that all we can look at is the framework. We can't look at the rate. We can't look at the impact that it will have on the health service. We can't look at anything else. Um, however, we've our, our next um, item on the agenda is around a research paper with which clearly outlines that in other jurisdictions they did take in societal impact. So I'm a wee bit concerned that we have been so the department have been so hard and fast on, on directing the committee that we can't take those into account and um I just I have concerns, particularly given that I did a meeting last week with the GP Federation in my own constituency of Mid Ulster, um and they outlined the difficulties and challenges that they are having. You know, in terms of the, now they weren't specifically talking about, about the personal injury discount rate, but indemnity plays a part in whether a GP wants to be a partner because it's quite a a large finance, financial implication for them at the minute, anything up to twelve thousand pounds. Um, so that you know, that is certainly concerning. I'm just I'm just wondering, do you have a view in relation to that on the on the 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 very tight remit of the of the committee around only looking at the framework and not how it impacts wider society including I, you know, I think MPS's view is it, it should clearly to us consider the wider impact I, I think the decision is political it's not just a simple actuarial mathematical formula when you're you're having impacts on GPs across across the Northern Ireland I, I think that's you know that has to be taken into account and the additional costs that may be faced by HSC as well, you know, how, how, however we set this rate. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Just then on the, the review period, you, you had said in your submission that you thought three years rather than five years, and, and I understand why you're saying that. I'm just a wee bit concerned that three years is such a short period that after a year you would have people just stopping, you know, sort of settling because they'd say well you know if we wait another year or so we might have something that'll benefit us on both sides you know in terms of both defendants and defendants. so I'm just wondering do you have a view on that? I think it's quite difficult to be honest with you between five and three on balance we prefer three just because you can see quite significant changes over a five-year period and I think that's been shown <clears throat> by past history so from, from our point of view, the benefits from having a more regularly updated rate outweigh the sort of negatives of having it um, over five years. And that's our position. Okay. And that's my final question. I'm going to go to other members after this. <laughs> Excuse me. Coming from an actuarial background, obviously the, the, the bill 
that we have been presented with in terms of sort of copying the Scottish model would say that the government actually would decide the rate. Um, do you think that is the right model? No, um, we believe the responsibility for setting the rate should lay with the elected minister and the Department of Justice. Um, it is, you know, a political decision to our minds. So the proposals of it being with the government actuary solely would not be our first choice. Um, we think the need to balance fair, just and reasonable compensation for claimants against the resources available to consumers and taxpayers is delicate. And we think that decision should rest with an elected official we can properly weigh the broader societal balance which has to be considered in making these decisions. Um, we'd also recommend the Minister gets input from experts at a minimum, consisting of the actuary, economists, investment advisors, and possibly wider stakeholders as well. Okay, probably my concern with wider stakeholders is everybody's going to have their own view, but I'm not going to make things pretty complicated, but, um, but I understand where, you, where you're coming from, and, and as I said, that's sort of my concern looking at the, the research paper today is that other jurisdictions did look at the societal impact and we've been directed very clearly that that's not the position of the minister so appreciate your answers to those questions um, I'm just going to check I'm not sure whether Rachel or Sinead put their hand up first so if I can bring in Rachel first and then Sinead if that's okay and apologies if I've got that the wrong way around Thank you, Chair, and thanks, Tim. Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll not take very long, uh, so apologies to me if, if you're wanting to ask the same questions. But, um, Tim, thank you very much, and your briefing was, was very good and easy to understand. Um, I had a number of questions kind of like on the same sort of um, theme as, Lin as Linda, so just picking up on one of the points and about taking other considerations into account, we have been told very clearly what we, we should and shouldn't consider. Um, and I believe, and also looking at the research paper about other jurisdictions that have done so. And I think I caught you right in saying in your introduction that you have an interest or a knowledge of rates being set elsewhere um, and, and in other countries. And maybe I misheard you if I did, sorry. But do you have any thoughts about why, you know, if, about that? Is, is that something that you would see quite a bit across other countries and other jurisdictions in terms of wider societal impacts being taken into consideration? Or is it a bit of uh, a bit of both? I believe there's a paper called the BICL paper, which um, looked at countries around the world that set um, personal injury discount rates, and, and in some countries around the world, the personal injury discount rate is quite positive. You know, it can be as high as plus six percent. It can be as high as plus three and a half percent in other countries. Um, I, I can't speculate as to the motives in setting those high discount rates, but you could certainly imply that the impact on society is one of the things that may be taken into account by some countries when in setting discount rates. Thank you uh, very much. Um, again, with it's already been, been touched upon about the general support for a review of a rate every five years, and you've, you've said that you would support one every three, um, and you've, you've elaborated on the reasons why you would believe that, um, and that would be more beneficial. Um, do you see three-year reviews elsewhere? Is that commonplace rather than a five-year review? Or again, is it a bit, bit of both? I think three years, to be honest, is at the shorter end of what you would see globally. Um, I, I think we're being asked what we think would be essentially the, the perfect scenario. And maybe you're balancing their perfection against um, almost the operational challenges of doing something more, more, um, more frequently. So I think three years is what we would recommend. 
but I would recognize that in practice, many countries use something a bit longer than that, probably more for operational reasons than anything else. Thank you very much. I appreciate your answer. And finally, from me, um, just in terms of the, the framework that is proposed in this bill, um, do you think that this would provide the disability and the certainty that is needed? Or is there something that we, we fundamentally need to look at to change? I'm, I'm straying into actuarial world. There's so many um, uncertainties when you're setting compensation for a lump sum. It's not just the use of the, the rate that you set, it's around um, how much care the claimant needs, it's around their life expectancy. So, so perfection is impossible. What we need to do is, is kind of work out what's fairest on average. I think in terms of the portfolio, the work I've seen by Parnell Financial Planning from the ABI does suggest it may be a little less, um, more cautious than you might see um, actual claimants invest their money in, um, although MPS ourselves does not have any sort of insight into how claimants invest their money. That's, that's not our role, but the work I've seen from ABI and Parnell suggests something a little bit different. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Tim, as well. You're welcome. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you, Rachel. Sinead Bradley. Thanks, Chair. Um, and I don't know whose hand it was on, so I don't think it matters at that stage. But thanks, Tim, for that. Um, Tim, I, I appreciate particularly in your presentation there about the, you know, you reflected on that 43 versus the 30 years. And to my mind, it was always, you know, I was of the view, well, if you can invest for longer, that you could expect to see a larger return. Um, and I know that you've pointed out that yeah, you could perhaps go for you know huge equity investment as an example where you might um, be able to take a risk. Or so I, 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 I'm not sure really, except the department did come back to us and they almost negated that argument as being it would be incidental in a difference. And I suppose in the large sums that we're talking about here, I don't expect it would be so incidental. So I can't be as dismissive of that point as the department maybe have um, recommended we should be. But fundamentally what your submission and your presentation here today highlights to me is the huge conflict that there is in this issue, whereby we as a committee are being instructed to hit the target of 100%. Even though we all know there's no exact science, and you use the word perfection. There's no perfection. It's all about notional portfolios, notional investments, timelines vary. So I recognize there's no perfection here. And everybody is saying, yes, but we all agree on hitting the 100%. But where I don't understand the logic is the government actuaries who essentially switch off all the noise from, you know, stakeholders and all the noise about um, all those who may have a vested interest in Atlanta in a certain place, they are charged with trying to hit that 100%, which we know is very, you know, debatable. But your suggestion then that it's not just about 100%, it can't just be purely about that. You should have a minister in the equation 
So, and I'm not disagreeing with it, but I'm just trying to follow the logic of this. So you're saying that 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 noise is not incidental. That that is worth hearing. We do need to know about the the balance on social value and, and particularly, I suppose that's true if it's if it's a um, a department within government, you know, and there's a, an, an effect on budgets and whatnot. But yeah, true to say that when you make that proposal to move to a minister or department led or an elected representative, that you are deviating unapologetically deviating from the very precise piece of work that GAD would do in trying to hit the 100%. Is that what you're saying to us, Tim? Yes, because it has wider societal impacts. As you've said, you know, moving to one, minus 1.75% is going to cost an extra 16 million this year in the budget. So clearly that has a financial impact, the choice of any PIDL. Also, um, it's having an impact potentially on the provision of general practice in Northern Ireland if we set a rate that is significantly lower than the rest of the world. And I think that has to be taken into account, the provision of healthcare. Well, Tim, that's a very good point. And I, I appreciate you raising it because ultimately, um, you know, we as a committee, and the chair will uh, um, appreciate this, I'm sure, we as a committee have been tasked with a job and the parameters have been firmly set in terms of what we have been asked to do. And we are receiving, and it's not just from yourself, we are receiving submissions from others who are saying, the parameters before you start are wrong. Before we get into the detail of how we do the framework, your, your actual parameters of your task are incorrect. So, you know, that, that is a, a big piece of reflection for us as a committee and um, to take on board, you know, that um, because I hear your arguments why and, and, and they're good, you know, there are good arguments there and the whole societal and the market and being able to sustain this in the longer term, that insurance is affordable for people going forward. Um, but but I do think it, it very firmly reiterates what others have said and it firmly puts back the question to us, is, is are the parameters that we're working inside the correct ones going forward on this? So I appreciate your paper and your presentation, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Nobody else has indicated, but I just want to check because I know Paul Frew doesn't have the... the, the the ability to put his hand up on, on the screen and just want to check, does Paul want to ask any questions before I move on? Yes. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah. My proper hand attached to my body to wave at you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tim, thank you very much. And again, um, I take a slightly different view in that we are a committee on our own right. Uh, and whilst we scrutinise this piece of legislation, we shouldn't be held back or restricted in any way or sense with regards to the parameters of which we look at. Um, so I would be quite bullish in that regard with regards to what we should look at should be our decision. Uh, one thing that strikes me about your submission, uh, Tim, is that you talk about for consistency and fairness, I'm quoting you from your own document, we would also recommend that the legislation is drafted to ensure that any new discount rate set as a result of the review applies to all settlements, regardless of instant date or date of issue of proceedings. And this is to avoid arguments on the appropriate discount rate to be applied based on retrospectivity. Uh, so that's one way of looking at it. But we also have a case whereby I think evidence we took last week 
the suggestion was that the, the rate should be that, that at the time of the accident, whatever rate was in place at that time is what people should uh, strive for, look for, and that then would stop. That would stop uh, a building up of cases or people holding back or people trying to go headlong before the rate would change. What's your views on that? Yeah, I would politely disagree with that piece of evidence given, given last week. I think one of the challenges is there can be a huge delay between an incident occurring and the claim being brought. You know, if a child is injured, there can be more than 18 to 20 years between an incident occurring and the claim being brought. And I think it's right that the legislation used to set the compensation is based on the sort of current um, money that a claimant would need to pay for their care, however you choose to sort of calculate that, rather than um, going back in time to when the claimant was injured. I, I don't think that makes um, sense from a fairness or claimant point of view, to be honest. So, so you would be very clear then, so it shouldn't be the date of the accident, the incident, it shouldn't be the date of the issue of proceedings, it should be at the final decision. Uh, at the resolution of, of a court case or at the settlement date? I think that is the most accurate view we have at that time of the cost of providing compensation. So I, I think that would be the right thing to use. Do you, do you think that if you go for reviews every five or three years, as, as you have suggested, that you'll still have this banking up of cases not settling? Um, and if you do have that, what's, what's the best outcome, five years or three years? Um, Does that mean that the rate would change, the rate would change uh, not as drastically as five years? Or do you see there a correlation within that? I think the longer the period, the, the greater the chance, there's a kind of a dislocation between the current market and the rate that's set. So that points you towards having a shorter period to remove some of that risk. Um, but equally, I recognise there's a, there's a period in which, you know, reviews become almost too short and too regular and you, you can't, it, you know, it can take more than three years to work through a case sometimes or certainly more than a year. So you'd want some uncertainty. So I think three years for us is optimal. I, I have some sympathy with five years, I, I think, Anything shorter, you're getting into the realms of making it hard to manage a case to settlement. And I think any longer, you get that huge risk of dislocation between the current market environment and what the, the, the sort of existing PIDR is. Okay, that's all I have for you. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate sure. it. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And, and thank you, Tim. Nobody else has indicated, but just to, to thank you for your presentation and for responding to our questions it's, it's certainly been very helpful and i think um you know on reflecting on, on some of what both Sinead and paul have said around the, you know the parameters that we've been set within and as i say the, the the next item on the agenda around the research paper i have some concerns that that we as a committee and i have to say i was actually very forceful in relation to this if that was the parameters with within which we were being set the task that we we almost wouldn't even allow the discussion to go beyond that um but i 
certainly have had my mind opened up by the research paper and and by the presentation. So I thank you again for your presentation and just want to double check. There's nobody else. No. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very much. Thank you. Okay, members. Um, we're moving on now to agenda item six, which is the research paper. And I'll refer members to pages 65 to 91 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. The committee commissioned a research paper on any wider impacts observed in England and Wales and Scotland following the changes to the PID or <coughs> under the new frameworks in those jurisdictions, including the impact on the cost of insurance and the implications for government departments, how insurance costs here compare with other jurisdictions and what type of government-backed indemnity schemes for GPs are in place in other jurisdictions to assist consideration of the potential wider impacts of the damages bill. Members, can I ask you to, to note the research paper um, and it will certainly, as, as I've already outlined it, it, it informed my thinking and I'm probably my only regret is we didn't get this done a bit sooner. Um, it, it has certainly, as I say, informed my thinking. Have have any members got any questions arising out of the research paper that we want to go back to research with or that we want to ask of the department? Nobody's indicating, so I'm going to... Sorry, Chair. Yeah. Uh, Chair, could I just ask, because I know we've had this conversation, and I did on part, I accepted what... I really did accept that target of 100%. You know, you either hit it or you don't. And there were warnings thrown to us that, you know, if you consider anything else, you may be deviating from that. And, and I get that. Um, but are the department then declaring that other parts where there is a minister-led uh, role in this, are they of the view, or the department expressing a view that, that they are not hitting 100%? that any claimants um, in those jurisdictions are being in some way discriminated against if they're not getting the 100% because it must be, if that's the declaration the department are making to us, um, I would like them to back it or to explain their logic in that. Yeah. I, I, should we, sorry, Chair, I just wonder, should we write to the department and specifically on that and ask them to explain their logic? Absolutely, Sinead, I would agree with that. And as I say, given the conversation I had last week with the GPs Federation for Mid-Ulster, I would have real concerns for the impact on GPs. And we have to, you know, and, and, and I've said this in relation to other issues in both in the chamber and in this committee, health may not be our committee, but health's the responsibility of all of us. The minister has made it quite clear that he wants us all to work together on health. Well, if we're all going to work together on health, we can't make this decision in isolation, not considering the impact that it's going to have on our primary care, which is really struggling at the minute, to be perfectly frank. Um, and if the primary care is struggling, so are the individuals who need it. Can so I come I, in there? Yes, yeah. Paul, yeah. Uh, can I just back up what Sinead and yourself have said? Because one of the first duties of the members in scrutinising legislation is, is about the unintended consequences of any piece of legislation, no matter what the legislation is designed for. Uh, and whilst we do know this is a very serious uh, 
piece of legislation which will have impacts on the individuals involved and we need to take massive cognizance of that. We also are duty bound, I believe, to look at any unintended consequences and assess that in the round. So I, I back up everything Sinead and yourself have said around this. Uh, and whilst we will always be sensible about, about the thing, we have to, it's a duty on us to, to make sure that we look at all aspects of law and all impacts with that, with that law. So, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the clerk can keep me right on this, whether this is something that we can do, but I'm almost inclined that we should write to the health minister and ask what the impact of the legislation is going to be on the, on the health department. And, and I'm talking about the wider issues. Obviously, I mean, it also has implications for business. It also has implications for motorists and, and people are struggling as it is. But the big concern for me, if I'm being honest about it, is health. And I'm wondering if we should write to the minister and ask what implications he thinks that this will have on, on the wider health service. So that includes GPs and primary care. And, and I think we could also ask him, are there any plans within the department to offer um, some kind of support in terms of indemnity for GPs? I also think um, that we should be asking the question in relation to, can, will the British government pick up the bill around that? Because they have obviously offered indemnity, you know, will HM Treasury pick up the bill because they've offered indemnity in terms of GPs in England and Wales. Um, I'm not sure whether there is a, an implication for here in that, but I think we should ask the question. Um, may well be no, absolutely not, but I, I think if we don't ask, we're not going to know. Could I add to that, Chair? Yeah. I'm not so sure that we didn't get a born a consequential. And I think that's something we should ask of the health, health minister. minister. If we did get some sort of Barnet consequential out of that indemnity in EB, okay. and then of course it begs the question: If we did, what did why that money get spent for? Yeah, why we didn't put it into the GP services? Absolutely. Um, no, I, I'm content that we ask those questions that we write to the health minister. I'm going to let Christine come. I know Rachel, you want to come in? Maybe I'll let you come in first, and then let Christine come in on those issues. Go ahead. I mean, I'm absolutely content. I was just quickly trying to open the bill folder, but I can't seem to get it because I know uh, there was submission received by the Department of Health, but I can't get it loaded on my screen. But it just might be worth going to the minister and asking for an exact assessment on the issues that we have been been talking about. Um, yeah. I appreciate the parameters which we were told, you know, we were told we have to be involved in, but I keep I keep coming back to this since day one. You know, the the hundred percent and the, the the outcome of the the court case. Has there been legal uh, opinion sought about what it has to be? We have to only look at you know within those parameters, and we cannot consider anything else. And if so, why does that not? Why did that not apply to other jurisdictions? So I, I'm I'm just very struggling to get my head around this. I appreciate if anybody can give me that information, but I am still tr very much trying to figure out if we're doing something different uh, as a committee or as a department or the assembly to what was um, happening elsewhere. Why? And, you know, if there has been legal opinion, then that's fine. You know, I would like to see that and I would like to explore that. But I think that was just the two points I wanted to raise there. So 
Thank you, Rachel. And again, I think we, we, we can put that to the department as well. Rachel, I'm, I'm content that we do that. Christine, can I let you come in just to, yeah. to confirm that all of what we've suggested there as a committee is, is yeah. good to go? Yes, thank you, Deputy Chair. Um, we had agreed last week to write to the Health Minister regarding the indemnity issue for GPs. Um, so there is no reason why we can't write um, and ask for the other information um, that members have highlighted there. Um, I have the submission from the Health Minister up on my screen. Uh, and one of, the, one, of, one of the things he had highlighted um, that, that would be helpful for them was uh, to ensure cases are settled by means of periodical payment orders, which was explored to some extent last week. Um, so that was one of the things that he had highlighted. Um, in his submission, he has said any framework should adhere to the principles of reimbursement to maintain compensation at near 100% levels. Uh, and he also highlights um, that it should be for those losses, but no more or no less. So I think he accepts the close to 100% principle, um, but does highlight in his um, submission the effect that changes in the rate would have on his department. It doesn't go into um, a lot of figures, but has said that um, the, for example, the new rate that's just come in will have um, a significant impact. Um, and he said, mm -hmm. with that in mind, it will be important for this bill to pass into law as soon as possible in order to minimise these potential impacts on health. He was talking about the interim rate in that respect. But we can write um, and ask for the further information and more details of the costs, etc., um, and see what we get back. We, we can also write to the department, obviously, on the point that Sinead had made and Paul had backed up on. Uh, and we can also check with the Health Minister about the Barnet consequentials regarding the indemnity um, as well. Regarding the legal um, position, we can ask the department. We do have the option, if you want, we could talk to our own legal advisors, but you might want to wait to get the response back from the department first. Um, I suspect the answer will be that all jurisdictions are looking to do 100%. It's just the method and how they get to that um, mm -hmm. is, is the question. But we can, if you would like, we can start exploring that or we can wait for the department's response first. Okay, Christine, I, I think, yes, we, we should certainly uh, write to the department and if we can start exploring it, that would be helpful. Just in relation to the periodical payments order, because that was something else that I was actually going to raise and, and had raised last week, um, if there is there a potential of doing periodical payment orders, but only where it's a public body or public service because obviously I would have concerns and I wouldn't want to see people not being paid for the full term of their you know of, of their life of their health problem what you know I don't want to see people not receiving payments or being left disadvantaged in any way but I think when you're talking about a department or a public body you should feel fairly certain that you will get the periodical payment order and I mean I, I do think we should look at is there is there potential to put something in the bill around that. Now, I don't know if we can or we can't, or whether it just has to be left in the hands of the judges, but um, I do think it's something we should definitely explore. I know in relation to other jurisdictions, they've left it that it's up to the judges, you know, they've, they've, they've given them the, the power to put them in place, but I think we should look at it. Is, is there potential for actually making it um, compulsory? I think Sinead wanted in there. 
Yes, Chair, um, just yeah, on that PPO thing, I think, you know, given the conversations we've had on that, I think there's a strong argument to explore that because not only, you know, when I reflected on it, not only is it um, sensible in terms of the budgetary release of the money, you know, there might be an upfront amount needed for initial setup, you know, for uh, to accommodate any disabilities, but then moving on to a PPO because there's also a safeguarding issue here as well. You know, and I think that shouldn't be lost and um, that the person who may not be able to manage their money and is dependent on other, um, you know, may have access to that money. So I think there is a safeguarding issue that shouldn't be lost and particularly around public bodies. I think that's a route we should definitely explore properly. Thank you. I absolutely agree with you, Sinead, in terms of the, the safeguarding issue, particularly around young or vulnerable people. Um, and I think that if we can put something in place that that allows to, that helps, you know, the health department, but it, that also ensures that the, the individual who's injured is looked after and cared for for the entirety of their lifetime, then we should be trying to do that. We should be trying to protect both our health service and the individuals who need that care. So I think we should we should look at that as well, Christine, as a committee. I'm going to start you. Okay. Thank you. Are members content then that we'll move on to the, the next agenda item seven? Okay. So the Criminal Justice um, Committal Reform Bill, consideration of the draft committee report. Just refer members to page 10 to 67 of your table pack for the draft committee report of the Criminal Justice Committal Reform Bill. The report needs to be approved at the meeting next week as the committee stage of this bill ends on the 11th of June 2021. Members, can you consider the draft report and submit any proposed amendments to the clerk by early next week? Um, all proposed amendments will be circulated to members together with the executive summary section of the report next Wednesday to provide time to consider them before the report is discussed and approved next Thursday. So I would ask if there are any amendments that we can get them to the clerk as early as possible to, to allow them to do their work. Are members content? Thank you. Agenda item eight, then the draft SR, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, search and seizure and detention of property. Members, the next four items on the agenda relate to draft statutory rules to bring three new codes of practice and one revised code of practice into operation. Pages 94 to 311 of the meeting pack for the are the relevant papers for all four items. Members, at the meeting on the 11th of March, the committee noted the outcome of the department's consultation on the draft codes of practice and its proposed next steps. Subsequently, on the 22nd of April, the committee agreed it was content with the proposals of four statutory rules to bring the codes of practice into operation. The codes reflect changes to the Proceeds of Crime Act introduced by the Criminal Finances Act 2017 and must be in operation prior to the commencement of the relevant CFA provisions. It is envisaged that the codes of practice and outstanding CFA provisions will come into operation on the 20th of June 2021. Members, the statutory rules were laid by the Department of Justice on the 12th of May 2021 and are the subject and are subject to draft affirmative procedure. The department has advised that there has been no changes to the policy content since the SL1s were considered by the committee. The examiner of statutory rules has no issues to raise with the technical elements of any of the four statutory rules. The revised code of practice under section 195T of POCA provides 
guidance on the use of search and seizure powers in the north and on the detention of property which has been seized by an appropriate officer. Members, are you content with the statutory rules? Okay, so members, I'm just going to put the question formally to the committee then, that the Committee for Justice considered draft SR the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, Search and Seizure and Detention of Property Code of Practice Order in Northern Ireland 2021 and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly. Are members content? Thank you, appreciate that. Okay, agenda item nine then is the draft is or the proceeds of Crime Act 2002 recovery of listed assets. The new code of practice under section 303A of POCA will provide guidance on the exercise of powers to search for listed assets, also referred to as personal or movable assets, and to the application by officers for prior approval from either a judicial officer or senior officer in order to advise the search part in order to exercise rather sorry the search part a listed asset is a size is seizable where there are reasonable grounds to suspect that all or part of it is recoverable property or it is intended for use by any person in unlawful conduct and the value of the asset or part of that, that falls within scope not less than the minimum value currently 1000 Members, are you content with the statutory rule? And I'm just going to put the question formally then that the Committee for Justice considered draft SR the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 Recovery of Listed Assets Code of Practice Order NA 2021 and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly. Are members content? Thank you. Agenda item 10 then is the draft SR the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 Investigations Code of Practice Order NA 2021. The revised Code of Practice issued under Section 377ZA applies to the following investigations conducted under Part 8 of POCA, confiscation investigations, detained cash investigations, money laundering investigations, and as a result of amendments to POCA made by the CFA 2017, detained property investigations and frozen funds investigations. The powers of investigation dealt with by this code are the powers relating to the production orders, search and seizure warrants, customer information orders, account monitoring orders and disclosure orders. The code also covers requirements for interviews under disclosure orders. Are members content with the statutory rule? I'll put the question formally that the Committee for Justice considered draft SR, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 Investigations Code of Practice, Order NA 2021 and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly. Are members content? Thank you. Agenda item 11 then, the draft SR, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, Cash Searches, Code of Practice Order NA 2021. The revised Code of Practice under Section 293A of POCA permits constables and accredited financial investigators in NA to search persons, premises and vehicles for cash which is derived from or intended for use in unlawful conduct. The cash must not amount to less than the minimum amount currently £1,000. There is no maximum amount of cash that can be seized. The code provides guidance on the relevant approval, recording and reporting requirements relating to searches. Are members content with the statutory rule? I'll put the question formally then. That the Committee for Justice considered draft SR, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 Cash Searches Code of Practice Order NA 2021 and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly. Okay, content. Thank you, members. The chairperson will outline the views of the committee in the debate on the 
four statutory rules which is scheduled for Tuesday the 8th of June. Okay, thank you members. Agenda item 12 then the commencement of NA provisions of the Criminal Finances Act 2017 SL1, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, Application of Police and Criminal Evidence, Order 1989, Order NA 2021. Members, if I can refer you to pages 313 to 323 of your meeting pack for the relevant papers. The Department proposes to make a statutory rule to amend the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, Application of the Police and Criminal Evidence, Order 1989, Order NA 2016 to include two new types of investigations under the order as introduced by the Criminal Finances Act 2017 relating to detained property to support new powers of forfeiture of listed assets and frozen funds to support new powers of forfeiture of money held in an account maintained in a bank or building society. Members at our meeting on the 11th of March, the committee noted the outcome and next steps of the consultation carried out on the POCA codes of practice, which included guidance on the new investigations and forfeiture powers. The rule will be subject to the negative resolution procedure and it is proposed that it will come into operation on the 28th of June, along with the commencement of the other provisions of the Criminal Finances Act 2017 and POCA codes of practice. Um, do members have any comments to make? Or questions? No, okay. So are members content that the proposed statutory rule or, or is there any other information which needs clarified? Content? Thank you. Agenda item 13 then, the Criminal Finances Act 2017 commencement, Regulations 2021. Members, if I can refer you to pages 325 to 335 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. The department is advised of its intention to commence <coughs> excuse me, the certain provisions of part one of the Criminal Finances Act 2017. The provisions to be commenced are detailed in pages 328 and 329 of the meeting pack. The Home Office will commence the, re the remaining provisions of part one of that act that extend to NA and these are listed at pages 331 and 332 of the meeting pack. It is expected the provisions will be commenced on the 28th of June in line with the commencement date for the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 Codes of Practice. The Department have provided the information in the SL1 format and indicated that subject to the approval of the Committee, the statutory rule to commence provisions would be laid in the Assembly on or before the 7th of June and would be subject to the negative resolution procedure. Since then, the Department has written advising that a mistake had been made and the commencement regulations are not subject to any form of assembly procedure. The department has confirmed that apart from this aspect, the, the information provided in the SL1 and briefing paper is correct, and it will issue a copy of the rule once it is made the committee once it is made to the committee for information. Members are content to note the position regarding the commencement regulations and the department's intention to bring the relevant provisions of the Criminal Finances Act into operation on the 28th of June 2021 unless any further information is required. Content. Thank you. Agenda item 14, making of a statutory rule to allow online applications of non-contentious probate cases. Members, I can refer you to pages 337 to 358 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. At our meeting held on the 14th of January 2021, committee considered a proposal from the Department for a statutory rule to allow online applications in non-contentious probate cases and agreed to request further information from the Department on a number of issues. 
Having considered the response from the department, the committee agreed on the 11th of February that it was content with the proposal for the statutory rule, which is subject to the negative resolution procedure. The department has now written indicating that the Court of Judicature Rules Committee has made the rules and the Minister has allowed the rules and they will be laid under the negative resolution procedure. The department has also highlighted that in drafting the statutory rule, the drafter made three minor technical additions to ensure that Order 97 is as up-to-date and accessible as possible. These additions do not change the nature or the policy intent behind the rule. Members, are you content to note the minor technical changes uh, that have been made to this SR since the committee considered the initial SL1? And unless you require any further information or clarification or wish to raise any issues, the committee will formally consider the SR when the report from the examiner of statutory rules is available. Are members content? Thank you. Agenda item 15 then, Department of Justice 2020 to 21, business plan end of year performance update. Members, if I can refer you to pages 360 to 386 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. The department has provided an end of year performance update on progress to deliver the objectives and actions in 2020-21 business plan. According to the summary, 43 actions were achieved and 18 were partially achieved. In the majority of cases, the explanation provided for actions not being fully achieved has been the impact of responding to the pandemic and the resourcing pressures. The department has also responded to the committee's request for details of the funding allocated to each of the actions in its 21 to 22 business plan following consideration of the plan by the committee at the meeting on the 29th of April 2021. The department has indicated that all of the actions in this year's plan involve input from staff across the department and a number of actions relate to work that has been taken forward with other partner organisations. It would therefore be a complex task to derive that information and it would have limited value as details could only be provided on the quantum of funding available to the department. Members, um, if you have any views on the end of year performance updates on delivery of the 2021 business plan and the response regarding the funding allocated to the 21-22 business plan and whether any further information or clarification is required. Okay, nobody's indicating. Um, Members, the 2021 to 22 business plan actions appear to be more generic and less specific than those in 2020-2021 plan. And it is therefore <clears throat> difficult to know whether all the actions that have been only partially achieved have been carried over to this year's plan. It will also be difficult to monitor whether these have been achieved going forward. So I am proposing that the committee ask the department whether all the partially achieved recommendations have been included in this year's plan and what action each falls under and that an update on progress to achieve these 18 actions is included in the mid-year update department has indicated it will provide on the 21-22 plan. Are members content with that? Great. Thank you. Agenda item 16 then is the review of sentencing policy, sentencing for offences of causing death by driving. Members, if I can refer you to pages 388 to 424 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. The Minister wrote to the committee on the 17th of February advising of her decision following a review of sentencing policy undertaken by the Department of Justice to increase sentences for a number of serious driving offences, including the causing of death or serious injury by dangerous driving or careless driving while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. 
or fall, failing to provide a sample from 14 years to 20 years. The committee subsequently received a request to meet with Mr and Mrs Dolan, who had campaigned for such changes following the death of their son, who was killed by a hit-and-run driver, who was found to be three times over the drink-drive limit and to have a cocktail of drugs in his system. And the informal meeting took place on the 13th of April. During the meeting, Mr and Mrs Dolan asked the committee to support the proposed changes, write to the Minister of Justice and the Executive and advise them of this and request a timeline to ensure the necessary preparatory work is progressed swiftly so that the required legislative changes can be brought forward as soon as possible and no later than early in the next mandate as proposed by the Justice Minister. The departmental officials attended the meeting on the 15th of April to outline the full results of the sentence and policy review and the proposed next steps. During the briefing, members took the opportunity to explore the proposed timeline for the recommended changes to the death by unlawful driving offences and what opportunity, if any, there is to make changes before the end of this mandate. The committee subsequently wrote to the minister on this. The minister has responded indicating that she shares the desire of the committee to bring forward the changes quickly, but highlights that the changes needed to implement the death by by driving decisions will involve consideration of the complex interrelationship the new provisions will have with existing legislation, and it will be important that all the ramifications are properly considered to ensure no errors or omissions are made. For these reasons, she believes the changes should be included in the proposed dedicated sentencing bill and has given an assurance that officials will continue to work towards completing the necessary preparations for the early introduction of such a bill in the next Assembly mandate. Are members content to note the Minister's response? And Does anyone have any comments or questions in relation to it? Chair, could I come in there, please? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I just want to go on record to thank the Jordan family because it was a very difficult meeting and I think they composed themselves very well and communicated you know, um, unreservedly the need for this to happen. And, you know, even since then in the media, we've watched it repeated and it is painful, painful to watch. And I can't imagine the horror those families are having to live with. And none of us here have the gift of saying what a next assembly or minister or mandate, you know, will do or achieve. But I just cannot refrain from going on record of how much I hope that this does not get dropped. I think it has to be one of the first items on an entry for any minister. And I appreciate the time running out um, in terms of this mandate. But I just think even for us um, to have something on the floor of the House or some way of reaffirming that this is cross-party, we, this, this should not be continuing. And it is. And I just really couldn't stress enough how much, how much I really want to see action taken on it. Thank you, Deputy Chair. Thank you, Sinead. And just to say, I absolutely agree. And I think, to be fair to um, the Dolan family, there's no way that this won't happen because they just won't tolerate it. And I think they were very clear in relation to that and very understanding of the fact that we are time limited in this mandate, and particularly given the amount of legislation we have coming through. And, and I do agree with the Minister that it is much better to be done as part of an overall sentence and policy um, review only because I would be fearful that mistakes could be made and you could end up with, with unintended consequences as we, we seen last year around the sexual offences um, legislation. But 
I absolutely think all of the preparatory work needs to be done and this needs to be ready to go very early in the next mandate. And I, I don't think, I mean, all of the parties have clearly given support around this. So I think it will be a drastic and dramatic change. You may have a change of minister, but I don't think that we'll have such a change in the assembly that none of the parties or none of the individuals here will be in a new assembly. And I think that we just need to honour the commitment that we made to that family, you know, as parties as well as individuals. So if we're not re-elected, our parties, you know, we, we made that we made that commitment on behalf of our parties, not not as individuals. So I think it is important. I absolutely agree with you, Sinead. We, we need to ensure this happens very early in the next mandate. Chair, can Do, I come in on that? Yes, Paul. Thank you, uh, Chair. Uh, uh, yeah, I agree with everything you guys have said. Um, but there, are, there are, I, I know that the department and, the, and this minister likes to always state and, and ask us to reflect on anything we do and everything that we would do around amendments to legislation. But there will be opportunities, I believe, in this mandate. And whilst I agree with you that these things should be done in, a, in, a, in, in its entirety in a sentencing bill, whether a clause is in a sentencing bill or whether it's in a miscellaneous bill, it still has the same effect, same impact. Now, there are maybe greater risks in amendments going into a miscellaneous bill. But I think on something as serious as this, something that has been supported right across the political spectrum as this, I think that's something that individual members, if not the committee, should look at very, very seriously going forward because there will be opportunities, I believe, in this mandate. Uh, and as we've said before, there are no guarantees, no guarantees that the assembly will even be in existence in another mandate, let alone another mandate. So these are things that we have to be cognizant of and concern ourselves on now. Sometimes you have to take the opportunities when they're in front of us, and this might be just one of those cases. Thank you. Do you know something we don't know, Paul? <laughs> um, just, I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying i mean obviously members and, and the committee can consider if there's if there's a potential for an amendment i would like to see the justice bill come into the committee that would be helpful can't amend something that's not in front of us and i don't think the minister's to blame for that paul um but that, that's another story just in in fairness i just want to seek agreement from the members to send a copy of the response to mr and mrs dolan um and as I say, they did indicate during the informal meeting that they accepted that it may not be possible for the legislation to go through in this mandate, but did ask that the committee make sure everything is ready to go for it to go through as early as possible in the next mandate. So our members content that we um, ask the department for an update on progress in this area early in 2022, so well before there's any election, hopefully. Um, I think it is important, but that none of that rules out the, the potential or possibility for any amendment to legislation that comes before us. Paul, Rachel, were you looking in? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, just it was um, more for yes, if we could send a copy of that to to the Dolan family, it would be um, would be good um, to stem from their meeting and their openness and transparency and honesty with the committee and mm -hmm. um, we, we whatever we have, I think we should do the same with them. But Christine, more for for maybe for for you, correct me if I'm wrong. Does the committee not produce a report 
at the end of a mandate before a new one to talk about work that we wanted to do or we're looking at but couldn't because the mandate finished and is this something and if if so is this something that we can ensure is on if it's not got to yes um the normal procedure in the past has been that coming up to the end of a mandate the committee will produce a report highlighting the work that it has carried out and also highlighting um priorities that it thinks the next committee should um take account of so, and there's there's no reason why this wouldn't be one of the issues that would be highlighted in the report. Thank you, Christine. And I suppose we'll, we'll come to that. Hopefully there will be a justice committee, stemming from Paul's comments then. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's something sure I'm, I'm more than happy to discuss that near the time whenever we're, we're talking about a report. Um, but certainly it would be something that I would support going into said report. Yeah, and just finally on that, Christine, if, if we're forwarding that copy on, if we could make sure that we, we do thank the Dolan family and give them that reassurance that we will continue to keep an eye on that and we'll ask for an update. And I mean, I don't think we should, I'm probably a bit reluctant to mention the amendments. It's something that we could contact them if it is something that we decide to move forward on, but I wouldn't like to do that and raise hopes in relation to that and then maybe it not happen I wouldn't want to do that on them but obviously if if the justice bill comes before us and there is the potential of an amendment then I think it would definitely be worthwhile us, us making the family aware of that okay thank you members so agenda item 17 then the audit office report managing children who offend follow-up review members if I can refer you to pages 426 to 497 of the meeting pack for the relevant papers. At the meeting of the 25th of February 2021, the committee agreed to request a written response from the Department of Justice to the findings and recommendations in the Audit Office report on managing children who offend a follow-up review. Upon receipt of the response, which outlined the actions being taken by the Youth Justice Agency, the committee agreed to seek the views and comments of the Commissioner for Children and Young People on the response. The Commissioner has responded, highlighting a number of concerns in respect of her assessment of the Department's implementation of the NAAO follow-up report and the predecessor report of 2017. The Commissioner has also stated that she is concerned that the Youth Justice Agency cannot provide robust evidence of ex the extent of their effectiveness and believes that they have extended their remit unnecessarily instead of working to develop successful partnerships with other departments and agencies, particularly in the area of prevention and early intervention. The Commissioner also highlights the recommendations her office made concerning youth justice in the second biennial statement on children's rights in a published last November, some of which repeat the audit office recommendations. So Members, if you have any comments, I mean, I, I think we should refer this response to the department at a, at a very minimum. But open, yes, Rachel, go ahead. Thank you, uh, Chair. Yes, I would agree with that uh, at a very minimum. And I think this just reiterates the importance of having a Children's Commissioner come to the, the committee. I know it's been on the Forward Work Programme for a while and then with the discussion about the, the Youth Justice Campus as well. But I, I do think we need to have a, a discussion with Kula and, and have her in front of the committee to be able to discuss these this report and, and these recommendations also in more detail and youth justice in general and children's rights, especially when it comes to 
criminal justice system. Um, I mean, I would have some specific questions even for Youth Justice Agency at, at this stage in terms of the performance data not collected um, and why is it not published um, in the annual report? You know, that, I, that for me is, is a bit of a, a one that stands out. And I also have similar concerns as the commissioner um, and also with uh, the Children's Law Centre who I know have been working on the use of spit and bite guards which are used by the SNI despite recommendations against it. Um, which is an issue I know that we have discussed before and also the policing board um, have discussed it um, and something that I am raising continually um, despite not getting as much information as I would like on it but um, I just think that that, that kind of that meeting with Kula would be would be great to have um, as soon as possible but also getting some of the answers to the specifics that she raises in her responses with the department um, that would that would be where I could see this going for now but there are obviously there are wider issues there on youth justice and children's rights that I think the committee should discuss at some point as well. Well, I suppose firstly to say, I mean, that, that was one of the recommendations I was going to make is that this is obviously something we put on the on the agenda for the meeting with, with Kula and hopefully that will happen sooner rather than later. If you have specific questions that you want to forward to Christine, Rachel, in terms of to the department around the youth justice issues, I just think then we have answers on the record for the committee. And I don't think that would do any harm. Um, I have, I mean, many of the concerns that the Children's Commissioner had, and I absolutely agree with you on the spit and bike yards. Just can't fathom in my mind why they're something that we would even think is, is necessary in this day and age. But anyway, that's where we are. I, I think that, so Christine, then if, if it's okay, Rachel will forward you any specific questions she has. And we'll forward the commissioner's response to the department for any comments that they have on, on it. Will do, uh, Deputy Chairperson, just to update the committee on the meeting with the children's commissioner. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever we were talking about that with the committee before, we'd agreed we would arrange it once the ministers from Justice and Health had published the results of the consultation on the development of the Joint Secure Care and Justice Campus. If you remember, we had got the results, but the Minister had asked us not to share them at that stage because they intended to publish them. Um, we had checked with the Department and were advised that they had hoped to publish them late May, early June, but we're still waiting for confirmation of a date. So it's just whether the Committee wants us to go ahead and schedule the session with the Children's Commissioner in the meantime. Um, um, and get it into the forward work programme um, or whether you're content that we wait until such times as the results are published. Well, can we maybe just contact the department again and ask them how they a timeline? I'm just concerned about putting the Children's Commissioner on the long finger indefinitely because some of the issues that you want to discuss with us, I won't have time left to, to deal with some of them. I won't have time for the committee to look at some of the issues. And yeah. I don't want to stand up with, with the Children's Commissioner coming to us so late in the mandate that it's really a pointless exercise for her and us. Yeah, we were aiming to have it arranged before to take place before summer recess. I think the department are waiting on the Department of Health to clear publication, and I think that's probably why they can't give me a better timescale. And that may be what's... It's just taking a bit longer for the Department of Health to, to, to clear it. So that's the only thing. We do have some possible dates towards um, the end of June, beginning of July, if, if you want us to go ahead and try and get something into the diary. Okay, no problem. Thank you, Christine. 
So are members content then that we move on to the next item? Chair, can I just make a point on the yeah, item? Um, I, I just want to thank the Commissioner because, you know, her letter is very succinct. I'm sure she could have written a lot more here. Um, but she has ultimately informed us mm -hmm. in, in no manner speaking in clear, very clear words about her concerns about the Youth Justice Agency and the data piece. And I really think um, we should be very specific in going to the department with this, that we want answers on that specific charge, because it's very alarming, to be quite honest, um, some of the assertions that are made in this letter. And, you know, and I refer to the paragraph where she referred to, um, they cannot provide robust evidence of the extent of their effectiveness. That's not something we should take lightly, and nor should the department, um, and then to have extended their remit from that base. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, alarm bells are ringing for me here, and, and I really think the department need to be held to account on this. So I, I, um, I appreciate we're bringing it, but I would like us to get a real tight timeline and get a response from the department so that when we do sit down with the commissioner, we can be getting to resolution mode as opposed to defining the problem because it's screamingly obvious. Mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling that when the commissioner comes before us, we'll have many, many more questions for the department. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I appreciate that, Sinead. You're, you're Thank, you. Thank you. Um, so agenda item 18 then is correspondence. Members, there are 11 items of correspondence at pages 500 to 668 of the meeting pack. Um, if I can draw your attention to two items on the sorry, correspondence sheet, the item two at pages 506 to 511 of the meeting pack, a response from the Minister of Justice to the committee's request that the Department of Justice incorporates a review of the ill health retirement process into the ongoing review of PSNI injury and duty scheme as requested by the policing board. Um, the Minister has indicated that she is open to exploring the issue and is content for discussions to take place with the policing board and PSNI colleagues to ascertain the extent of the work involved and the potential impact it might have on target dates included in the injury on duty review action plan previously shared with the committee. Are members content that we forward a copy of the response from the Minister to the Policing Board? Yeah. And the Department is due to provide a written briefing paper on phase two of the review of the PSNI injury on duty scheme for the meeting on the 24th of June and the Department of Finance intends to undertake a formal consultation on proposals to reform the Civil Service Injury and Benefit Scheme, which applies to prison staff. So the next item then is item 8 at pages 639 to 641 of the meeting pack, correspondence from the clerking and member support office, providing details of protecting your social media reputation, online training sessions available in June for members. If any members wish to attend the sessions, the email address to book a place is on the correspondence cover sheet. Okay, are members content to note an action? Any other items then as outlined in the clerk's memo? Can I just, um, I suppose it's going back to an earlier earlier point, and, and this is on my own behalf rather than as, as chair, 18.10 under the correspondence, Bernardo's 
raised um, concern about the delay of the justice bill and the impact on the abuse and trust laws. So I do think again, and I did raise this last week, but I do want us to go back again to the department and ask when is the justice bill coming before the committee? And if it's not, why is it not? You know, I think we need answers to that urgently because from previous discussions with the department, if this justice bill doesn't make it to the committee in the next week or two, it's not going to make it through this mandate. And, and the stuff within that bill is just too important. And, you know, Paul has outlined the potential for amendments that are really important to all as, as a committee, but also as individual members. And I mean, this is something that we said from the very beginning of our committee that we wanted to see and that was important to us. So I'm just not content that we haven't got that yet. And, and, and I want to want to get a response back in, in relation to what is the holdup? What exactly is the problem? Because it was agreed. You know what what is in the bill was previously agreed so i think that we need to we need to get this moving okay members agenda item 19 then is chairperson's business and i don't have any and agenda item 20 is any other business do any members have any other issues they want to raise no okay the date time and place of our next meeting members will be thursday the 10th of june at 11 a.m in the senate chamber Parliament buildings. Okay, members, content. Thank you very much for attending and for your patience. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.